Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Animal Deterrence Center. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauther, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The NY Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of the Cast. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Alden. Today, we have with us a great guest, Major General Jason Armagost, or as he is known, Armo. And we're going to talk about, you know, he's the, the new commander of 8th Air Force. And we're going to talk about 8th Air Force and its mission and organization and what it does. And then we might even have a chance to talk a little bit about the B-21 and any other sort of important issues that Armo wants to talk about. And of course, my sidekick as always is Bob, my magic genie, who will give General Armagost his three wishes at the very end of the show. So keep that in mind. You'll have three wishes, but they got to be related to the topics we talk about. So with that long introduction, Armo, welcome to the show. Hey, Adam. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for being here. Um, you know, you, uh, we've, we've known each other for a while now and I've always enjoyed talking to you and I particularly enjoy talking to you in this format and this for- forum because uh, I've heard what you've done with others and it's been really fascinating to follow your journey with Nuclecast. So it's uh, a real pleasure and honor to be part of that. So thank you for what you're doing on this, this, this broad topic. Well, you know, there's, uh, our nation has 350 million Americans and most of them, now, I'm not sure that's quite as true for the Nuclecast audience, but for those that are not normal listeners who might not be aware of it, they don't know much about 8th Air Force. They don't necessarily know about its mission. So could you kick us off by telling us about 8th Air Force and its mission? Well, I would offer that the history of the 8th Air Force is maybe what's incredibly fascinating and maybe most fascinating about it because that gets us to where we are today. But, um, you know, there's, there's a fantastic book called Masters of the Air, which is about to be an Apple, Apple Plus uh, a series that we're waiting eagerly for um, that really does kind of tell the story of, world, of Eighth Air Force, Mighty Eighth, all the way back into World War II. Uh, it, it's just, it's, if it is not the most storied uh, institution or organization in the U.S. Air Force, uh, I would challenge anyone to find one that is more storied, um, not just from World War II, but, you know, uh, from the Cold War uh, through Desert Storm One and through all the way through today, through the uh, global war on terror and now into a new era of competition uh, and pure adversary uh, competition. So I would break down for folks who are maybe not so familiar with what a numbered Air Force does, uh, I would say uh, in the case of 8th Air Force, we really do two things, and it goes down to some very simple language in my mind, and this is how I uh, assess myself each day and what we do. Uh, the first thing is, is, is in the spirit of the orders that we follow, it is be prepared to, dot, dot, dot. So when we say we, are, we must be prepared to do something, we have to organize, we have to train, and we have to equip our people, we have to develop our leaders and our airmen to do things that we are asked to do in the future. So 
Uh, it's, it's making uh, smart decisions about how we allocate resources, manage resources, and lead our people and develop our people so that we can best be prepared to be an on-call, long-range strike force for the nation. There's about 24,000 airmen in 8th Air Force who are uh, uh, at various stages of their career, obviously, from uh, airmen, in my case, I've been in for 31 years, uh, and we have people probably on a bus from San Antonio right now to um, the bases in 8th Air Force. Um, but, but for the most part, it is uh, bomber aircraft, uh, it is command and control, uh, and command and control platforms in the case of the E-4B, and it is uh, those things that we do primarily for strategic command. And that leads me to the second uh, simple language approach to how I say what, what it is we do, which is uh, on order, dot, dot, dot. And that on order is literally from the president, um, and Secretary of Defense, and Joint Chiefs of Staff, down through the combatant command, um, STRATCOM as assigned forces in this case, uh, to do something that we are called to do uh, under crisis or in competition. Um, to uh, preserve options for our country. So those really are the two kind of simple approaches, be prepared to and on order. So that's, that's kind of how I've been in, 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 in really try and simplify through language what it is we do every day. So as you think about the forces, you know, at your disposal that work for you, could you maybe tell the audience where those forces are, what they're comprised of? So we are all in the central time zone, which is, uh, you know, has some very good reasons based on physics uh, throughout the Cold War when it comes to our ability to protect and defend ourselves and yet be able to respond uh, to historical uh, challenges in the case of the, the Soviet Union. You know, you had intercontinental ballistic missiles and, and routes of flight that would optimize our time to survive and our ability to be ready to give a follow on response. So that's, that, that's kind of a uh, physics reason for why we're mostly in the, or all in the central, central and mountain time zone, I guess, to be fair. Um, but uh, we have, you know, we consist, in the case of bombers, we have um, B1s, B2s, and B52s. So the B1s are at Dias uh, Air Force Base in Texas and Ellsworth Air Force Base in South Dakota. The B2 is at Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri. And B-52s are at Barksdale Air Force Base, Louisiana, and uh, Minot Air Force Base in North Dakota. And so you, not only do we have that uh, dispersal amongst the center part of the country, but we have a north-south dispersal as well, again, to provide uh, uh, resilience and survivability from a threat. And, and in that resilience and survivability, we all then also have the ability to respond uh, and posture in different ways, which is kind of historically what bombers are known for is the ability to be very visible and transparent in what it is we're doing to uh, deter. Now, with the B-21 coming online in the years ahead, is correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the purpose of the B-21, of course, is not to replace the B-52, but primarily to replace uh, the B-1 and the B-2. And can you explain for the listeners, sort of what is the thinking on the B-21 and its purpose and role and what are the numbers and why are we choosing and making the choices and decisions we're making? 
Yeah, so that, that's a, there's a lot, there is a lot inside of that question, um, and I could really talk about it at length, but I could also get myself in trouble very quickly with the classification, so I'll be, I'll be judicious <laughs> and talk to this. But um, um, really, you're, you're correct, right? B-21 will ultimately, we're going to go to a two-bomber force, so the B-52 is being modernized, and it's going to become the B-52J. Um, the B-1 and the B-2 will both be ultimately replaced by the B-21, um, and the real reasons behind the B-21, um, you know, the history books at some point in the future are going to be very fascinating because of the choices we made and the, and the opportunities we saw in what you can do with a, a truly penetrating force. You know, I, th I think history tells a good story on the B-2, and, and the B-2 is often um, really kind of pointed at as one of the systems. I would not say it is the system, but it is certainly one of the systems that really did challenge uh, uh, the Soviet approach to war. Uh, in fact, I just read a very good book by Andrew Krupinovich uh, um, that's called The Origins of Victory. And he speaks at length about uh, what the Soviets in the 80s termed the recce strike complex. And, and if you really apply the B-2 thinking and the approach to our ability to penetrate and hold targets at risk, um, kind of of our choosing, uh, that same kind of approach and theory applies uh, in a newer generation of aircraft that in, in many ways is similar um, because stealth, uh, stealth technology uh, is electronic warfare and the principles of electronic warfare are physics and engineering. And so some of those principles remain constant, um, but your ability to do things differently uh, with newer physics and newer engineering um, can, can maintain that preeminence of the capability. But ultimately, having a penetrating force like that that doesn't just rely on, on exquisite weapons necessarily um, and, and can, uh, can, can hold at risk at the time and place of our choosing different targets is really a, a capability that, that I would say drives deterrence not just at the nuclear level but down through the conventional level as well to provide that optionality to uh, you know, escalation manage for a president to say, um, we may or may not choose to uh, use a nuclear weapon, but we can certainly hold you at risk at the time and place of our choosing. So that's kind of the, the, the theoretical background and the, and the way ahead for uh, what remains uh, an, incredibly, uh, an incredible opportunity with uh, different approaches to physics and engineering, uh, yet the principles still apply. So as you think about this dramatic change in, in replacing the B2 and, and, you know, the B1 and bringing on the B21 and sort of the, the China threat that we're facing, which is, you know, it's essentially put the adversary, you know, three times further away and in a, a fight of potential fight of distances where we're going to have to go there and go there much further away to me, it seems pretty clear that bombers become increasingly important, that, uh, you know, they'll be some of the earliest elements that'll be in a fight because it'll take the Navy a while to get there. It'll take the Army longer to get there. And so bombers will probably be one of the, the earliest supports the United States provides. So as we think about, and you think about these scenarios, you plan for these scenarios, as you think about potential conflict in the years ahead, 
how do you see Eighth Air Force positioned and positioning itself to be prepared for the kinds of fights that that we may face? So I think I would break that down into a a couple of ways of looking at it. You're exactly right, by the way, uh, when it comes to the Indo-Pacific. The distances are vast. I mean, they are. So my very, when I was a lieutenant, I flew F-16s in Misawa uh, and we deployed to Australia once and then uh, went around India actually through Singapore over to Saudi Arabia. And, and, just the it's staggering really the distances we're talking about it almost the map doesn't even almost tell the tale so you're exactly right about the distances and the criticality of having uh, the right numbers of long-range strike platforms uh, to to meld with the joint force kind of to your points everything has strengths and weaknesses right Um, and to, to to make that joint force have those capabilities that are additive uh, at the time and place of our choosing where they can come together um, is really, really important. But um, uh, I see it in two ways. I see it in competition and I see it in crisis. And, and the B-21 obviously will have a role in both. Uh, competition is underway, right? We, we, see, uh, we see our adversaries making very deliberate choices when it comes to the, the systems, the uh, air defense systems they're developing, the the uh, regionally powerful power projection platforms they are testing on a routine basis, whether it's hypersonics, whether it's um, uh, very long-range uh, air-to-air missiles, uh, um, really inventive and, and uh, uh, integrated surface-to-air approaches um, and maritime uh, approaches to that. So uh, that is all... Uh, in competition right now as we speak. And so uh, we're going to get the force balance right um, in the future through the platforms uh, that we have, which will be, again, the B-52J ultimately, and then the B-21. But then also uh, in that mix, um, I would offer that uh, command and control becomes even more important as we, we look at uh, how do you uh, have systems that con- confront systems? So uh, there's a very good RAND paper, I think, from 2019 called Systems Confrontation Warfare or Systems Confrontation and System Destruction Warfare. Uh, it's a very good uh, uh, unclassified report you can get that um, does kind of lay out the Chinese approach to the things I just mentioned and the systems they are developing to integrate together to, to uh, contest uh, new space push us back and, and, and make us make hard choices, just like we're going to do the same. We're going we're gonna to contest that denied airspace. We're going to make choices in platforms and weapons and sensors, but we're also going to command and control differently. And I would offer that the professionalism and the uh, history of 8th Air Force really does offer us a platform to jump off from as far as how we develop new concepts of operation to confront that, those systems that they're This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Amla Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. You know, it's sort of interesting that you say that because one of the jobs I've had in the past was I used to run Air Force professional publications, and one of our publications was Air and Space Power Journal, Mandarin. And 
I would occasionally go to China for meetings and to participate in uh, conferences. And, and it was about 2013 or so, 2014 maybe. I think it was 2014. And I was in Changsha at the National University of Defense Technology, and I, I was presenting on some U.S. nuclear concepts. And I, I was approached by a, a PLA general, and he said, Adam, I read your journal. And he meant the, the Mandarin version of ASPJ. And he said, I think we can match your technology, but I don't think we can match the quality of your officers. You think yeah. better than we do. And and I offer that example to ask you, as you talk about concept development and you you talk about how you are as a you know as an organization preparing for what is a very different fight from what we have historically prepared for and even from what we spent the last 20 years doing how is your staff and 8th air force thinking through the challenges of this you know the distances the different strategic approach of the chinese versus the russians versus fighting a war on terrorism all those very unique challenges that the chinese respect us for yeah. how are y'all thinking about you know doing that differently and and approaching it no i think uh, that's a very good question and i and I, I i would like to find out where that general is now because i suspect that from 2014 until now he <laughs> might have been one of the ones that was purged right so um, because he sounds like a very thoughtful general um, and he appreciates uh, the value of a professional force. And it is one of the things that, uh, you know, the Chinese force struggles with, right? Because they haven't been in a shooting war since 1979. So I think, you know, that their leadership does have a lot of questions as to their ability to take the technology that they're rapidly developing and, and, and to go towards those concepts of operation. So I think I think there's two there's really kind of again there's two parts to your question almost and it, it's a it's a struggle right we have we have watched now two administrations with a national defense strategy that has made a very distinct pivot in both cases uh, from the global war on terror to a different approach with these two peer adversaries Russia being the acute threat and China being the uh, long range threat long range meaning long over a time horizon uh, they they seem to have postured themselves better to have a, a temporal competition with us that is maybe different than Russia's. Um, and so uh, it's, you know, I really, I, I think what we, we have evolved very quickly in 8th Air Force in particular, I would say from it, when you were in 2014, when you were in China, we had 8th Air Force bombers on Guam and uh, what was known at the time as continuous bomber presence. And, and, you know, there's geographic combatant commands are very right to want to have a certain posture in their theater to present forces in such a way that complicates the decision making of adversaries. And it shows our commitment to our partners and allies and shows uh, that we are there and we're not uh, we're not going to vacate something. Right. So um, now I would also offer that we've evolved from continuous bomber presence to what's now known as bomber task force and bomber task force i would argue is helping us think through these new concepts of operation in very interesting ways 
because I, I think we are also doing a better job, even particularly in the Indo-Pacific, with integrating with partners and allies who are uh, very uh, uh, interested in, in furthering that integration and, and making us more interoperable, not just integrated, uh, showing up in the same airspace at the same time, but interoperable in our command and control, in our uh, strategies, in our uh, uh, ability to work with and understand each other at, an, in a, at a headquarters level and on our, and our staffs. And so um, that has been really fascinating to watch. And I will tell you, you're probably not going to see, it's more like a dimmer switch where we've gone from a global war on terror mindset, uh, where bombers played a very, uh, very powerful role in that as well. But um, we've, we've shifted um, to a, a much different approach. Now, institutions um, are bureaucratic by nature, and there's good reasons for that. And so as the institution, I think, catches up to the thinking and the concepts of operation, uh, we're going to see kind of quantum leaps in our approaches to things. And, and we're starting to see that now in how we command and control, um, maybe how uh, we, we think about communications differently, um, whether it's long, um, beyond line of sight, whether it is um, how we move data around, uh, how we share data, how we architect it so that everyone, every one who has a sensor in or near uh, the, the space of interest can participate together and share an awareness, uh, but also to have uh, uh, what I would call battle management uh, decisions being made as far as, so we don't misallocate resources or effectively target things such that um, we make the best use of limited resources. Begin, because again, it's back to your point of the ranges are vast, and, and the payload has to matter uh, in the time and space uh, that it occupies. Yeah, that's a good point. And I wonder is, as we sort of prepare for this new future, is there a significant amount of work you're having to do with 8th Air Force Airmen to prepare them for what is certainly, it appears at least, to be a significantly more difficult challenge uh, than, than what we've seen at least, you know, in your career and my career. It, is there, are there major things that you're doing with airmen, new training, new education? Are you looking for different types of people? Uh, I mean, what are you doing to prepare eighth for, you know, this type of competition and conflict that we're facing now and into the future? Well, I, I think we actually have uh, an advantage maybe that some others don't in that to the point of your question. And because we're also a nuclear um, command, um, that nuclear command has very high standards of, of process, uh, of discipline, um, such that, you know, we have, we have to have a safe, secure, reliable, and credible force. And the credibility part is what I'm really talking about there. And so, uh, when you have these very high standards, obviously the airmen, as you as you get them into your command or they or they maintain their professional development through the command, um, they they are aware of that and they they um, because of that I would offer it presents opportunities to think differently in ways maybe that we wouldn't um, if we were not so uh, closely guarded basically cl closely held as far as what our foundational responsibilities are. And so I think that's a real opportunity. But to your point, we, 
I would say we all, we look for different um, characteristics in people, I think now, but, but regardless of whether we look for them or not, we get them. And so I'm pretty astounded at how uh, younger airmen who come in, uh, their approach to technology is, um, is different than certainly our generation uh, because they, they essentially grew up with it. My son, my youngest son, who's uh, 17 and a senior in high school, you know, he, he, it's interesting to watch him approach technology. He sees it. Uh, it's, it's, it's ubiquitous to him. It's not a, it's not a something that's injected into his life. It was, has always been part of his life. And we see that in our airmen too. And so they often have innovative and shockingly fast uh, understanding and can then therefore lead our understanding in these new concepts and concept development. And so that's a real opportunity we, we take advantage of. And General Boussier has uh, really implemented, um, uh, as, as did General Cotton and General Ray in my time here at Barksdale, they have all ver- focused very much on professional development, professional education, specific to the nuclear mission. But again, I, I would offer that the expertise you gain in understanding that comp- the competitive aspects of that, but then how that operates in crisis really does kind of open your mind to different possibilities about uh, how you build a disciplined force, how you build a force that is adaptable and agile in complex environments. And so I, I think um, that is that is playing out. But again, we uh, sometimes ha- have to remind um, people of uh, what it is we have to do every day through the transition. I think it's important to remind um, anyone who's maybe not as familiar with our mission set uh, you know, we're talking about getting the B-21 and the B-52J, but all that time as that gets developed and engineered and brought to the field and, and made ready to be operational, there's no backing off of the requirements for the B-1 and the B-2 in that time frame. In fact, we have to operate at a very high level through that fueling. And so that, it, again, I would say that the standards that we have present opportunities that others may not uh, have to them because the the interest and the oversight and the uh, clear understanding of the of the essential nature of what it is we do is so important. I was thinking about your response and and it sort of made me think about the very unique nature of your mission in the sense that we we have a triad and the ICBM leg you know it's the on alert force. And it's focused on one singular mission. We have the boomers and the boomers are focused on one singular mission. Then we have a bomber force that is focused on a conventional mission most of the time and a nuclear mission some of the time. And while you have to be both, you know, you're never not thinking about the nuclear mission, but on a day to day you know, you're oftentimes, you know, the, the the global war on terror was the perfect example of delivering conventional munitions with great regularity. How do you balance? Because thinking, you know, nuclear is a different mindset than thinking the conventional mission. So how do you and, you know, your your airmen, how do you balance that sort of bipolar nature that you have to inherently have to, to perform both of those missions? So I think uh, the way I help them 
or help myself as well understand the, the where we are today and then where we're going in the future. Um, the way I most find myself um, having kind of sparks of inspiration or imagination about how we approach that is by thinking about what the threat is doing, right? It's very, very dynamic. Um, Russia in the last year and a half invaded a neighbor, um, you know, the, the largest country in Europe, um, and has routinely, pro you've probably talked about this on Nuclecast, um, routinely kind of uh, uh, in hidden ways and not so hidden ways threatened the use of nuclear weapons in this conflict or uh, around this conflict, right? And so um, that, that uh, remains an ever-present thing. China is testing and integrating systems at a rate that is across domains, you know, space, maritime, um, now nuclear with ICBMs. Uh, this is routinely happening and it is, it is um, something we watch very closely. But they're also trying to figure out how to integrate to their own uh, new forms of command and control. And, and they also, we know, are going to challenge our forms of command and control. And so... The way I help understand the threat or get myself to understand the threat and, and help our airmen to understand the threat opens up their mind and their approach to, well, if that's what competition looks like, you know, if we're being pressed on these areas, we need to be able to be agile and respond, not respond as in a kinetic response, but our ability to, to shift our force or shift our tactics, shift our strategies to adapt to that new contested environment. And so I think I always start with the threat, and, and the threat is real and it is evolving quickly. And there are characteristics we can build into our processes and our uh, um, how we integrate with other joint forces, how we uh, provide optionality across a spectrum of conventional weapons, um, across domains, uh, up through nuclear, right? Because I think it, if competition shows us anything, it shows us that everything connects. And so, you know, for me, it's, it's less a matter of, uh, well, if, if a nuclear, if, if, we're, if we're talking about nuclear weapons, that means everything else is also still on the table. Because I think if I were the president, I would want to see a range of options in response to whatever uh, the vignette is, right? And so um, understanding that co competition, understanding how, how we're being pressured on, on different areas, I think opens up new thinking uh, about how we can connect across domains and, and think about, you know, what could cyber do here? What can space do here? And how do we learn together such that when it all comes down to the decision-making power of uh, the national command, then uh, they have options uh, that, that are credible and reliable and, and have been practiced so that, that it's not something that is uh, discovery learning in times of crisis. Now we're at that time in the show where I like to bring out Bob. Now <laughs> Bob is my magic genie. And if I rub my lamp, you know, I, I found this in the desert in my time there. And, you know, Bob's been a good friend over the years and he's granted me my three wishes I only got three, but he's now giving you three wishes about 8th Air Force. Any wishes you want regarding 8th Air Force? So with that, what's your first wish for Bob? So I would, I would uh, love to be able to 
ubiquitously communicate what it is we do. Because so here's a good example. And when I say ubiquitously, I, I think, um, you know, any, anywhere you go in the military, whoever you talk to, they're going to be able to talk at length about their expertise of what it is they do. And we have airmen in 8th Air Force who could do that at length. Um, but that's the beauty of having had a couple of joint jobs and having recently come from a joint, uh, uh, joint job. Um, it's really interesting to learn about the capabilities and the approaches and the mindsets of others. And so I think people kind of inherently understand the power of bombers. They are a, they're an awesome force. They have been kind of historically proven to uh, potentially be a difference-making force. They, uh, you know, will, will in any large-scale competition or large-scale uh, conventional fight, they generally end up being the ones who drop the predominance of the weapon tonnage, things like that. And so there's kind of this inherent awe to them. But to be able to ubiquitously communicate what it is we do and how we do it, um, again, I think shows others, particularly inside the DOD, so across the services, um, the opportunities that existed to jointly work together in that way. Um, so that's kind of a wish to say that um, I, I would like other people to understand what it is we do in deeper ways, because as we think about the future, um, a lot is classified, but all of the things that are classified kind of operate from first principles. And so we can talk about a lot of that stuff without even getting classified. It's kind of like your point about range. Um, it, we've got to be able to get there. You, you, and, you've, and if you don't have exquisite weapons that can fly a long way, then you've got to be able to get close enough and survive to hold at risk targets such that you're credible enough that uh, you are a deterrent force. That's the other uh, side of this coin, right? If, if we can communicate that effectively enough by demonstrating that we can do these things and integrate and exercise in ways that are uh, uh, useful, then that, that PLA general who is either retired or maybe even further along in his career can remain uh, impressed with the professionalism of our joint force. That was a pretty easy wish. Okay. So that's a, that's a, yeah, that's a pretty good wish. How about wish number two? Okay, I would uh, I would say you know uh, I don't think you would ever hear um, a military leader who has to uh, make resourcing decisions not ask for the ability to make better resourcing decisions. Right? We see I see opportunities that sometimes we're not able to uh, uh, capitalize on because of capital, right? And so uh, it's a competition inside and across the services for. Uh, those resources to make what I would call certainly operational level moves. But I would also argue that in the case of bombers, if you uh, if you make a few key decisions for resourcing, um, then you can make some big strategic moves as well. And I would offer that's kind of what Secretary Kendall did starting just a little less than two years ago with um, the operational imperatives. I don't know if you've talked about that on, on Nuclecast at all. But uh, I think that's what Secretary Kendall we was haven't. trying to do. Yeah, he, he, he said, okay, you know, here's a line in the sand. We, we are now confronting uh, uh, a different type of adversary. This is a, and the competition is out of the gates now. And we're going to think differently about how to approach those things. And so uh, he had operational imperatives. And he said, these are things we must do. And here's how we're going to figure out how to do it. 
and, and he paired operational leads and acquisition leads together. And we spent a year, uh, really, and more than a year now, but we spent a year, and this was in my previous job, uh, really thinking hard about how do we uh, make the B-21 a strategic difference maker uh, going forward. There were other categories as well, but uh, uh, in our case, for long-range strike, it was B-21 family of systems. And, and really the big thing is, so what I'm saying for my wish is what we really uncovered in that, and this is kind of first principles, right? What, so what matters when you're talking about uh, strate strategic game-changing platforms is not just the platform itself, but it's like the question you asked about developing the airmen. It's the, it's the platform, it's the airmen, it's the weapons, it's the sensors, and it's the communications and command and control. And so those things together, um, and, and not, not bought in isolation, not uh, thought about in isolation. Oh, by the way, oh yeah, we need a radio. Oh, by the way, we need to be able to talk over the horizon. Oh, by the way, we ought to have sensors with different capabilities so that we can have uh, what I would call a local kill chain, or, or we can share information with other platforms and systems that are in our vicinity such that we can cooperatively target. It's all things like if you read uh, some of the even open source, what China is doing uh, with their systems, it's similar thinking, actually. And so that's why I said I would start with the threat, but then, you know, really, really help us help the institutions make good, smart choices as we compete going forward. Okay, final wish. Okay, final wish. Um, so along with that, but it's very different, actually. Um, you know, because, so I, I was commissioned in 1992. So that after, uh, desert storm, right. And so, at, and, and in about six months after the Soviet union fell, um, in December 91. And so the world that I grew up in and now having served for 31 years, uh, whether I like it or not, I developed habits. I developed ways of thinking about things. I developed, um, um, uh, choices or choices that I in, have inherently made, but are not have not recognized, that have resulted in uh, thinking about problems in certain ways. Probably the thing that I would wish was that I could categorically overcome those for the people who follow me, because I worry that we raised a generation who's a little bit younger than me. You know, say fifteen to twenty years, so field grade officer types in the Air Force who were not just uh, commissioned after uh, those things happened, but literally that's all they've seen in their professional lives when it comes to global war on terror and the responses to 9-11 and um, uh, sh uh, categorical dominance of the air, which uh, is, is not the case when we talk about peer adversaries. And so I think um, I would wish for some kind of an intellectual and spiritual break from those days such that um, my confidence is raised that those field graders uh, literally see the world differently than they were raised to. Yeah, that makes sense. That, that is a challenge when, you know, you have no real Cold War experience. You've, right. you've focused on, you know, terrorism as a tactic of the weak. And so you've never really seen a peer adversary. So it, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, Jason, we're at the end of the show. 
Uh, thanks for coming on Nuclecast, and thanks for sharing your thoughts about 8th Air Force. No, I, I appreciate Adam, and I appreciate what it is you're doing with this program, but I also appreciate how you uh, think deeply and broadly about the challenges we face in uh, uh, the, not only the nuclear enterprise, but the national security enterprise writ large. Uh, you have a, a strong and interesting voice that uh, I see a lot, see often when it comes to opinion pieces and things like that. So I appreciate what it is you're doing to help us, you know, break that chain of thought. Well, well, we, I guess I try too. <laughs> and thanks <laughs> we'll get to our you, wish. the listeners, for joining us on this episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, well, well, hopefully you, the listeners, will join us on the next episode of Nuclecast. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center, a 501c3 that seeks to educate key decision makers, stakeholders, and the public to ensure a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Crunkle. Help us grow our followers by sharing it and follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast.